Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 432 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Reboost. During the time period from 1974 to 1977, Skylab maintained its unmanned orbit, while the Soviet Union successfully launched and operated the Salyut 3, 4, and 5 space stations. These missions had varying levels of success, but there were five notable resident missions to these stations. The durations of these missions were 14, 30, 63, 49, and 18 days, respectively. By the close of 1977, Skylab 4 still held the record for the longest space mission, but its reign would soon come to an end. In the meantime, the United States had completed its final Apollo mission, the 10-day Apollo 18, as part of the Apollo-Soyuz test project docking mission in the summer of 1975. Now, NASA eagerly awaited the arrival of its first space shuttle. The Enterprise, orbital vehicle OV-101, was scheduled to carry out atmospheric landing tests in the summer of 1977, followed by the second orbiter, Columbia, OV-102, conducting an orbital test flight starting in 1978. Optimistically, NASA headquarters had instructed Johnson Space Center and Marshall Space Flight Center at the beginning of 1977 to develop plans for using an early space shuttle mission to reboost Skylab to a higher orbit. By September of 1977, a decision regarding the reboost mission would be made. Engineers in Houston evaluated the state of the orbiting station and the status of the shuttle program. They concluded that attempting any form of rendezvous before the fifth shuttle flight test, then scheduled for late 1979, would be unfeasible. This was due to the lack of studies on docking with an inert station and 
the space shuttle still being an unflown and unproven vehicle, despite positive outcomes from the atmospheric test conducted in California at the time. But there was one unavoidable problem. It became evident that the solar activity surpassed all previous predictions since the Skylab astronauts departed from the station in 1974. The solar cycle was reaching a new peak during 1980 through 81, which would result in increased temperatures in the upper atmosphere. This rise in temperature would lead to an increase in the density of the layers through which Skylab was orbiting. As a consequence, the drag on the station would increase, causing it to fall to Earth at a significantly faster rate. In any case, the official decision to proceed with the Skylab reboost mission was made on September 1, 1977 initiating a two-year preparation period for the development and production of the required hardware systems. The success of the entire project hinged crucially on the timely execution of the first four space shuttle missions without encountering significant delays. This ambitious endeavor represented an immense gamble and a race against the clock. NASA Administrator Robert Frosch cautioned President Carter's science advisor, Frank Press, regarding the gradual deterioration of the space station. Frosch emphasized that the space agency lacks substantial expertise in predicting the effects of an uncontrolled re-entry of such a large and complex spacecraft or in evaluating any surviving debris from space. Thus, determining the amount of material that might burn up, survive reentry, or impact the ground would be a formidable challenge for NASA. The plan developed for reboosting Skylab was unique. In November, Marshall Space Flight Center granted a letter contract to Martin Marietta. The contract was for studying the optimal method of completing a mission and designing and manufacturing a system that would be carried by the space shuttle and attached to the station for the purpose of boosting it to a higher orbit. Wherever possible, previously existing and certified hardware was to be utilized for efficiency and cost effectiveness. This also aligned with the origins of Skylab itself as the majority of its hardware was derived from other programs. The plan was established for review in March of 1978, less than two years from the projected natural decay date of Skylab. NASA was facing a tight deadline and was struggling to keep up. By the end of the year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, reported that the current solar cycle was the second most intense in 100 years. This revelation suggested that the station's return to Earth would occur much sooner than NASA's initial estimates. Despite concerns about the inadequacy of available resources for predicting accurate solar activity, 
Even with the recent Skylab data providing preliminary information, NASA appeared to disregard the NOAA forecast in 1976, which indicated the imminent occurrence of a major solar peak by the end of the decade. The official NASA History of Skylab, titled Living and Working in Space, written by David Compton and Charles Benson, suggested that Marshall displayed some level of interest in disregarding the collected data as they strongly desired to continue using the station. Consequentially, acknowledging the potential risk of the space station falling to Earth before it could be salvaged was not in their best interest. It was also plausible, they suggest, that the most pressing need to get the space shuttle operational, an endeavor in which Marshall was a leading field center, may have contributed to Skylab's abandonment. At Marshall, management oversaw development of these solid rocket boosters, main engines, external tank, and space lab science module, which was earmarked to supersede Skylab in the 1980s. There were no formal plans to utilize Skylab beyond 1974, and the station was effectively neglected. In the midst of these developments, other aspects of the shuttle program continued to progress. In January of 1978, NASA made a significant announcement introducing a new class of astronauts, the first since the selection of scientist astronauts in 1967 and the mole transfers in 1969. The group of 35 candidates included the first six women chosen for NASA for astronaut training. A week later, the space agency made another announcement indicating that the critical Skylab reboost attempt would be assigned to the third shuttle mission rather than the previously planned fifth mission set for October 1979. This decision improved the chances of reaching the space station before its orbit decayed. Martin Marietta was developing a propulsion system for the Skylab reboost. Once the system successfully reboosted Skylab to a higher orbit, it would remain in space powered by a solar panel. The fifth shuttle flight was tasked with retrieving this solar panel. On January 24, 1978, the Soviet satellite Cosmos 954 experienced a catastrophic systems failure and subsequently re-entered the Earth's atmosphere over Canada. During its descent, the satellite's nuclear-fueled electrical power module containing approximately 100 pounds of highly radioactive uranium-235 disintegrated, dispersing fragments across a vast expanse of the Canadian landscape. This incident, which made global headlines, served as a stark reminder of the potentially devastating consequences of radioactive space debris and the risk associated with large objects plummeting from the sky. Fortunately, the Soviet satellite's re-entry caused minimal damage and no injuries. However, the subsequent cleanup efforts resulted in a significant financial burden. 
Consequentially, attention shifted to Skylab and the potential consequences of a 100-ton vehicle re-entering the atmosphere. NASA responded by assuring the public that no radioactive materials were on board Skylab. Additionally, NASA disclosed plans for a shuttle mission to reboost the station and confirmed that the shuttle launch would ensure Skylab's orbit would not fall below 170 miles. Despite its confident demeanor, NASA's revised estimate for the Skylab's lifespan in orbit represented a significant reduction from previous projections. This downward adjustment raised concerns within the State Department, which began receiving inquiries from governments worldwide seeking assurances that Skylab would not crash onto their territories. In response, NASA established a Skylab Contingency Working Group tasked with coordinating internal planning within the agency. The group's responsibilities included 1. Staying updated on the latest status of Skylab 2. Informing foreign governments about developments 3. Acting as a liaison between space agencies and the Department of State, Defense, and Justice. During this time, NASA reviewed the conditions aboard the station. They decided that mission control could either increase or reduce the drag on the station by controlling its attitude. Under ideal circumstances, it might be feasible to position the station to minimize drag and extend its orbital lifetime by five months, even though its altitude would remain unchanged. Although Skylab was orbiting over 90% of the world, studies indicated that the likelihood of human injury from falling debris was minuscule, albeit not entirely impossible. In fact, after publicly releasing the figures, the agency got updated risk estimates that raised the percentage from earlier projections, but it was still very low. Despite this, such a small risk was enough to prompt the media to launch apocalyptic narratives worldwide. Now, a little info on the crew that would fly the Skylab Reboost mission. Following their return from Skylab, the nine Orbital Workshop astronauts either left the agency or shifted their focus to supporting the development of the space shuttle. On March 17th, NASA announced the first four two-man shuttle crews to complete the orbital flight test program, including Fred Hayes as commander and Jack Lausma as pilot. A few weeks later, Hayes revealed that he and Lausma were training as the prime crew for the third shuttle flight. Since this mission was tentatively assigned to conduct the Skylab reboost mission, it appeared that Lausma would make an unexpected rendezvous with the station where he had previously resided for two months, although he would not have the opportunity to reboard it. Their backup crew consisted of former Skylab crew member Vance Brand and rookie astronaut Gordon Fullerton. 
Originally, the shuttle was set to embark on a four-day approach to rendezvous with Skylab and deploy a remotely controlled 10,000-pound teleoperator retrieval system, or TRS, from the shuttle cargo bay using the robot arm. The TRS, which was a box-like system, could be controlled by a shuttle crewman in the aft flight deck. Two TV cameras on the TRS would provide a view of the docking approach to Skylab's multiple docking adapter. An Apollo-type docking system would be used for the link-up. Once the TRS was docked to Skylab, there were two options. If the decision was made to keep the station in orbit, two 13.5-minute burns of the 24,100-newton rocket thrusters on the TRS would lift the complex to a higher orbit. If the decision was made to deorbit the station, a long 27-minute burn would point the spacecraft to a selected footprint in the Pacific Ocean away from inhabited areas. The final decision would be made based on the latest orbital predictions in early 1979. Upon completion of the burn, the TRS would undock from the station, remaining in orbit until its retrieval during the fifth shuttle mission for return to Earth. The system's evolution originated from a concept developed in the mid-1960s, incorporating a rescue capability. It was anticipated that the TRS would become a regular payload component of shuttle missions, supporting payload boosting, stabilization, retrieval, and delivery operations. Scheduled for delivery to the Cape in August 1979, just one month before its launch, the finished unit faced a tight schedule, but training continued. Meanwhile, NASA Administrator Robert Frosch endeavored to elucidate the cost associated with maintaining Skylab in orbit. Despite his optimistic assessment, the actual probability of the mission's timely readiness and the Skylab's continued presence in orbit remained uncertain, hovering at an even chance of 50-50. NASA Associate Administrator for Spaceflight John Yardley acknowledged the ambiguity surrounding the launch date, describing September 28, 1979 as merely a probable target launch date. By June, NASA had already invested $750,000 in the project and anticipated an additional $3 million expenditure by the end of 1978. Funding the system presented an extra financial strain for NASA's Washington headquarters. Although the Senate Appropriations Committee had reinstated $20.5 million out of an initial $4.359 billion funding proposal for NASA's 1979 fiscal year, originally cut by an earlier request, this allowed TRS development to proceed. It came with a stipulation, though. NASA required further approval for funding exceeding $10 million, and the remaining $10.5 million could only be allocated toward shuttle funding. 
Any other use of these funds would necessitate committee authorization. Skepticism persisted on Capitol Hill due to delays in shuttle development and concerns about Skylab's decaying orbit, casting doubt on the feasibility of the proposed mission. During the evolution of the mission and the crew's training, efforts were made to extend the station's control decay as long as possible. In February 1978, a joint team of engineers from Marshall and Johnson Space Centers traveled to Bermuda to establish contact with the station. The site chosen was Kenley Naval Air Station, Bermuda, as NASA was upgrading its tracking network in preparation for the shuttle. The station in Bermuda was the sole location still capable of communicating with the obsolete UHF equipment on board Skylab. Over the ensuing months, the controllers progressively assumed control of the station, addressing one system at a time. The process was protracted and fraught with challenges, as systems deemed operational would unexpectedly go offline again. Additionally, reliance on a single ground station limited communication to brief contacts during each orbit. It was determined that Skylab was spinning at approximately 10 revolutions per minute, necessitating a lengthy procedure to charge the batteries individually and activate the control moment gyros, thruster attitude control systems, and attitude sensing gyros. While the team gradually made advancement, it became evident by June that the remote site was inadequate for managing the station. At Johnson Space Center, a two-shift flight control team commenced operations in a control center. They worked in 10-hour shifts to manage the task. Tracking stations in Madrid, Goldstone, and Santiago were swiftly integrated into the network. As the summer months progress, the ongoing battle to maintain Skylab's stability and functionality persisted. However, a recurring issue arose as the gyros experienced a renewed deterioration in their operation. Additionally, the refrigeration system responsible for cooling the batteries faced challenges with coolant loss and propellants were reduced to lower limits further compounding the problems. Despite tireless efforts to prevent Skylab's potential downfall, the vehicle continued to be subject to atmospheric resistance at the orbit's lower point, known as perigee, leading to a gradual decrease in its high point, or apogee. Skylab underwent a critical phase, skirting the low point of its orbit 17 times a day every day of the week, inching closer to Earth with each occurrence. Close monitoring of the orbit was diligently carried out through mission control, necessitating the expansion of the team to five groups working in three shifts to ensure round-the-clock surveillance. Among the members of this enlarged team was future astronaut Bonnie Dunbar, who would later be selected for the astronaut program in 1980. In addition to the four seasoned astronauts designated for the reboost flight, a few of the aspiring astronaut candidates were given their initial technical assignments for the shuttle Skylab reboost mission. 
These assignments involved evaluating the mission in simulators at the Shuttle Avionics and Integration Laboratory and the Flight Simulation Laboratories at JSC. Among those engaged in this reboost concept were John Fabian, Robert Gibson, Terry Hart, and Brewster Shaw. In the summer of 1978, Marshall revived enthusiasm for Skylab, which had just successfully regained control, by issuing a press release highlighting its potential as a valuable addition to shuttle and space lab missions involving long durations due to its spacious living quarters and crew accommodation. It was theorized that Skylab could be used for valuable experiments with the potential for enhanced capabilities by integrating new experiments using the Shuttle Orbiter and Space Lab docked with Skylab. Speculation continued about the release, which stated that the combined hardware could perform a base platform for larger space structures that could be termed public service facilities. In June 1978, following extensive deliberation, Robert Frosch had assured President Carter that NASA had the situation fully in hand. He stated that if all proceeded as planned, the shuttle would be capable of deploying the TRS to either reboost the station or prompt a controlled re-entry. This course of action represented the optimal choice, presenting no undue risks to the shuttle once the initial flight tests were completed. Regrettably, the shuttle itself dealt the final blow to any remaining hopes of rescuing Skylab. Chris Kraft, the director of JSC, had voiced his personal view that saving Skylab was a fruitless endeavor and that resources should be allocated to more promising pursuits. Although progress was being made on the TRS, numerous obstacles hindered the shuttle's readiness for its first mission let alone its third. As the end of 1978 approached, the expectation of an initial launch before the third quarter of 1979 appeared increasingly unlikely, pushing the third mission's tentative launch date to November 9, 1979, assuming no further unforeseen obstacles. However, additional setbacks emerged in December when test failures on two separate space shuttle main engines further hindered the already troubled development program. These delays implied a launch no earlier than 1980. With the earliest feasible flight of the TRS in April 1980. Given NORAD's predictions of the Skylab re-entry in July or August of 1979, it became apparent that the rescue of Skylab was no longer attainable due to the delays in shuttle hardware development. NASA had considered using an expendable launch vehicle to launch TRS, but even this offered minimal chances of success in boosting the station in time and even lower odds of successful executing a controlled deorbit. The remaining option was to allow Skylab to re-enter the atmosphere randomly and hope for the best possible outcome. President Carter was presented with two distinct options. Option 1, terminate the TRS program, reallocate $30 million to the troubled shuttle program, and allow Skylab to disintegrate upon re-entry, or 
invest up to $30 million to continue the TRS development, launch TRS on an unmanned launch vehicle with a low chance of success, less than 1 in 10. It was also suggested to President Carter that choosing option 2 would provide a versatile vehicle with potential for various applications beyond its initial purpose. And, from the perspective of America and the international community, the United States government actions would be perceived as taking responsibility for Skylab's re-entry. Their primary objective was to minimize property damage and personal injuries. If these attempts were unsuccessful, the government would be seen as having made a genuine effort. In the eyes of the world, America's response to Skylab's re-entry would be more proactive compared to the Soviet Union's handling of Cosmos 954. Carter opted for the first option, disregarding the advisor's suggestion for the second, asserting that sufficient taxpayer funds had already been invested in the space station's rescue mission. On December 19, 1978, NASA made an announcement regarding Skylab. They declared that the rescue mission to reboost it would be discontinued due to its low probability of success. Consequentially, the production of the TRS would be terminated and the allocated funds would now be redirected to support the development of the shuttle program. This strategic decision aimed to expedite the launch of the first vehicle into orbit at the earliest opportunity. Initially, the reboost mission began as a venture with minimal confidence. But through persistent dedication, it transformed into an arduous undertaking. Though the challenges were formidable, they ultimately proved rewarding for the flight controllers. A significant factor contributing to the success was the discovery that Skylab systems surpassed expectations. The team devoted countless hours to testing and modifying systems to alleviate limitations in batteries and attitude control fuel. An innovative approach involved adjusting the attitude in which Skylab orbited, circumventing the need for thrusters. Remarkably, the gyros continued to function until the very end, exceeding all expectations. Finally, in 1979, NASA would have to face the most potentially dangerous part of Skylab's six year mission crashing to Earth in the safest way possible. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 432 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab Reboost. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, February 17th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email address in the text box at the right side of the page. The uh, 2024 donor page is up and ready for your inspection, so please verify that we have your name on the page 
at the right level with the correct number of longevity emojis. If we don't, just email us and we will fix it. The email is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 251 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. You will have to put in the word archive. Now you may ask yourself, why do we have two podcasts? Why do we have an archive podcast? And the reason is, originally there was a limit on the RSS feeds of 200 episodes. And when I approached 200 episodes, actually when I got past 200 episodes on the original feed, iTunes stopped accepting new episodes. So what I did was I created the archive over at uh, Podbeam and uh, just started adding the old episodes onto there so you can get the entire the entire uh, podcast all the way through the 432 episodes. So that's why we have an archive. That's why it's broken in two. Now the limit is actually 300. So we're at about to 251 on the archive so the archive is filling up too so it may be filled up in, it may take a couple of years for it to fill up but the uh and then uh what i'm going to do i think then is just uh i don't have but about 200 in the main feed so i'll probably loosen that up and to add more there once that occurs depending upon how long the podcast goes i'm not sure how long it's going to go but uh, we'll kind of cross that bridge when we come to it. But that's why we have an archive feed. Okay. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SpaceRocketHist. It's called X now, by the way. You knew that anyway. And you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com. Space Rocket History. Slash Space Rocket History. In afterthoughts, as always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. And I do, once again, want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, I lean very heavily on David Shaler's book for this episode, Skylab America's Space Station. And uh, it's a very good book, and I can recommend it highly. Uh, Skylab is falling next time. I'm planning on next time being the final Skylab episode. So, uh... Make sure you get your hard hat. And while you're doing that, get your tang ready because we will have the 11 years podcast anniversary ceremony next time. So if you would like to participate, as I know many of you do, go ahead and get some tang or suitable other suitable orange beverage. <laughs> Was it a good idea, do you think it was a good idea, to even consider trying to reboot Skylab? It was, had some issues, you know, it had some failures, and it was, it was, had, it had gotten most of its use out of it, but, you know, it is so difficult to get a station up there in the first place, and it's relatively expensive. I know they did this one as cheap as possible using, uh, reusing the equipment, and, but the, the lab itself had to be built. But 
it's, it, it takes something to get something. To, it takes some effort and it takes some cooperation. It takes getting people willing to fund it to get it up there. So once you get something up there, is it worth it to try to spend some more money to keep it up there? If you think it might be useful in the future or, you know, especially with the uh, shuttle coming up, was it worth it? So, or is it better to just try to crash it into the sea where it will uh, hopefully not hit anything? So that was the decision they faced ultimately, and uh, they decided <laughs> if it, it really was a combination of things that was the problem. Uh, the solar activity was the, probably the biggest problem because they were estimating that thing was going to last into the 80s at its current orbit when, when the, the last crew left, and that didn't happen. And it was due to that high solar activity. And that heated up the atmosphere, created more friction for it to go through because there was even that high up in space, there was some atmosphere, some air molecules there for it to hit and to slow things down. So that's pretty much what happened. So if we didn't have the solar activity, it, it might have lasted till the uh, shuttle mission, to the third shuttle mission, which was, actually didn't go up until 1982. It could have made it that long, maybe. Uh, yeah, it's hard to tell. So that would have been, uh, it could have been close on timing. Now, I thought that uh, TRS, that uh, Teller Operator Retrieval System, was a pretty clever idea. And taking that up into Skylab, well, I'm sorry, taking that up with the shuttle and using it to boost Skylab's orbit because it had the benefit of not having to risk anyone's life in case the station couldn't take the force of the boost. In other words, if you've got a Apollo craft back there, a command module or something, and you're pushing it up, is it going to be able to withstand that? Are things going to start to fall off and hit the Apollo module? You know, hit the command module. So it had that advantage of you could operate it from the shuttle and fly it over there, and it had the Apollo docking probe there, and it would connect up right where the command modules were connecting in the past, and that's where they were going to boost it with. Now, on the other hand, if we did have another Saturn 1B available, do you think NASA would risk using it to push the station higher? Well, I don't know. There is that fear that you're going to have it break up or, or some debris-type problem. I don't know if they would risk a crew to do that. And uh, another idea I thought of that would have been... Uh, wasteful and expensive but I thought we might could have used one of the leftover Saturn V's if we had saved one you know that was, wasn't going to the museums but if we had one of those that was available to use if we kept it in a condition such that it was available to be used now of course that would have been a lot of cost a lot and it would have been a, a big deal to launch a Saturn V for that 
but it would have it could have succeeded in pushing it up but we we uh, didn't do it that way they were counting on the shuttle to do that so it's also too bad that we had so many delays with the shuttle if they could have brought that online as originally planned which was late 70s they might would have gotten that trs system to work but that is just my speculation of what might have been i'm sure nasa considered all these ideas and some ideas are probably ridiculous but uh i just enjoy thinking of what could have happened sometimes now in our series 1979 nasa has a serious problem of crash landing the Skylab without doing damage to people or property. And that means putting it in the ocean out of the shipping lanes. Are they up to this task? Well, there was a pretty big panic going on in the world. Uh, the media really stirred things up with this and they were selling hard hats and, and, uh, you know, a lot of people were kind of making fun of it, too. Were, you know how people make a joke out of it. At least that's the way they were in the 70s. And uh, and some people were genuinely afraid of that it hitting them. But uh, I, I didn't think it was going to hit us. I didn't give it too much thought back then, to tell you the truth. But uh, I wasn't that worried when it came down. But a lot, there were a lot of people that were. Anyway, we'll find out if NASA is up to the task of bringing down Skylab without injuring property or personnel. In personal news, both Mrs. SRH and I am pretty healthy. The grandchildren, I got sick again. I think they're passing it around or something. I had Evan and get a strep throat and, uh, I was afraid he's going to give it to his sister, but that didn't happen. I'm, I'm staying very busy here at school, teaching my uh, physics and programming. And that's uh, I'm really staying busy with that. It's, it's tough to keep up. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that's going to get a little bit better soon as we are going to have a spring break in March. So that'll be really nice. And I'm hoping that Mrs. SRH and I can go on a little cruise because we haven't been on a vacation since uh, probably since 2019. So I'd like to do that if we can. We've got one booked, so we're planning on going in March. A little five-day cruise down to the Bahamas. If everything, as long as nothing bad happens, <laughs> you know, anything can happen. Okay, let's move on to financial support. Over the past fortnight, we received 10 new donations and pledges for 2024. And I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who donated at the Orion level and earned an alien emoji. Peter M. from California donated at the Orion level and earned a Nova emoji. Wayne and Naomi Holmes from Washington donated at the Apollo level and earned a 11 emoji for 11 years of support. James P. from Texas donated at the Apollo level and earned a space communications dish emoji. 
Stefan F. from Germany donated Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Rich McKinney from Virginia donated at the Gemini level and earned a 11 years of support emoji. And Rick K. donated at the Gemini level and earned a shooting star emoji. Ian M. from Ontario, Canada donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. Karsten E. from Denmark donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. Colin S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Thank you very much. We appreciate that very much. Patreon donors are currently at 220. That is down from uh, down five from uh, January. Hopefully that is expired credit cards. It takes a few days in February for all that to clear out. And hopefully that's expired credit cards that uh, the problem is. And next time, we'll, we'll probably have to go through that again next month. Our total unique donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2024, have reached 242 with a goal of reaching 400 for the year 2024. Okay. So, if you are enjoying this podcast that has been running now for almost 11 years without commercial interruption and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check. Donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. And today, I would like to give a shout out to all those who promoted to the big 10 years of financial support, Longevity Emoji. And I'm going to read their names here. William A., Grant M., Christian R., George L., Stephen L., John G., Frazier W., Kurt H., Buddy M., Mike H., Charlotte D., David W., Julio A., Ben D., Carrie M., Chris B., Andy C., Johan L., Stephen S., and Robert M. Thank you so much for 10 years of financial support. We appreciate that, certainly. And like I said before, the donor page is up, so please check that out and make sure everything's right there with your name. If you are unable to support financially, it would help if you could retweet the post on Twitter, on X, or repost my Facebook post, or give a five-star review on the podcatcher of your choice. And that would be great. Now, it is my distinct pleasure to hand it over to Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH Archive Magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Alan Markham. Alan Markham, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all who contributed so far in 2024. My sources for this episode were 
Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler. The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 433 posted on or about February 17th. So long for now.